It's something for nothing. The Rush Fan Cast. Jerry and Steve with you, as always. Jerry, we've done it. We have done it, Steve. I know what you're talking about. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. Just to pull the curtain back, this is the second time we're recording this open because Jerry forgot that this is our 100th episode. Hey, it's hard to remember. 100 episodes is a lot of episodes, Steve. It is a lot of episodes. And what do you think the chances were when we started this podcast, Jer, of us making it to 100 episodes on a scale of 1 to 10? Zero, Steve. The, <laughs> the, the, the odds were zero. There's no way you could have convinced me that we would do more than 40 episodes. 40? I thought maybe 20. I figured we would. We started off doing two episodes per album. Right. We were just going to do the albums. So there you go. That was it. That's. I thought we'd be in and out. That's it. But we're in. We're in deep. We are in deep. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter, <laughs> at RushFanCast. Instagram, we are at TheRushCast. Email Jerry, therushcast at gmail.com. Lex, of course, did the bass intro and outro. We have him to thank for all his hard work. We do. Over these 100 episodes. Follow us on your favorite podcast app. And speaking of thanks, Jerry, I thought it would be good for us to thank all the guests we've had on the podcast. Yeah, we would be remiss, as they say. Yeah. If we didn't thank people. And you and I both wrote down separately lists that I'm holding up here of everybody who's been on our podcast. Yep. And it's quite a list. It is quite a list. I ran out. I had to start on a second sheet. <laughs> it's paper. crazy, but we're going to do it in order. Skip Daly, Eric Hansen, Nathan Santos, Ryan Murphy, Alex Galucky, John Take, Liz Swan, Mark Irwin, Martin Popoff, Ray Warzniak, Ed Stenger, John Petuto, Howard Ungerleader, David Calcano, Jillian Marianovich, Joe Bergamini, Steve Brown, Why Why Not the Band, Terry Carr, Derek Bacharach, Stephen Drozd, Rob Wallace, Ryan Reed, Alex Helene, Donna Halper, Jacob Moon, Richard Houghton, Brian Hyatt, Vicki Flyer Hudson, Dale Heslip, Charlie Roy, Ron Lipnicki, Steve Holmes, Jeremy Bout, Miller, Eddie Trunk, Jonathan Dinklage, Jim Benner, Jared Schofer, Max Mobley, and Kevin J. Anderson. That's some list, Steve, <laughs> isn't it? And we thank each and every one of them. If not for each of those guests, we wouldn't be able to provide you with the great content that we're trying to provide for you. Yeah, I'm uh, just thankful that every one of them said yes, because <laughs> we just basically it's sending people emails. Yeah. Saying, hey, you want to be in our, our little podcast? And there you go. And each one of them was terrific. Yeah. I'm reading off that list and I'm thinking there's not one stinker on this list. Not one. Not one. Not one. The only stinkers are us, Steve. The only stinkers are us. And who we really have to thank most is you, the listener. If you weren't listening right now and throughout the previous 100 episodes, we wouldn't be able to bring these to you either. So thank you very much. That is very true. And um, I think a special thanks, though, goes out to three individuals one of course being mark Irwin. yeah he really got us started he did he's the best ray warzniak yes not only has he been on has he been on three times not yet and i think he'd probably be upset about that you're bringing this up Jer, <laughs> because he hasn't been on he wants to be 
the Steve Martin of something for nothing. That's right. That's right. He does. He's just been a great resource because he knows everything about Rush. And if we have a question, we just ask him. He's been a great sounding board, really. Yeah. Thank you, Ray. And of course, Ryan Murphy from at Rush Fans Instagram. He's just been a great friend to the podcast. He's always promoting our stuff on his site. and He's got 40,000 followers and he's always putting our episodes on his story and everything. So that's always great. And he's the guy Ray's most jealous of because he's been on three times. Yes, that's right. <laughs> but we're going to have Ray back soon. So Ray's going to have a third episode very soon. And we look forward to that. And also, Steve, uh, I have you to thank. Me? Of course. Yes, of course. You do so much work. People are always, the emails, sometimes people are just like, you guys, I know how much work goes into something you guys do. And I feel like writing back to them and like, uh, you have no idea how much work Steve does. <laughs> I do almost nothing. <laughs> I write emails to people and that's about, that's, and then I sit here and talk to you and you do all the actual work of this podcast. Well, I have to thank you too, because I wouldn't be able to do it without you. Me? you no, seriously. You need somebody. <laughs> I need somebody to talk to, right? Don't we all, Steve? You need someone to talk to. I need someone to talk to. If we didn't have each other here to bounce things off of, this would be a boring podcast, I think. Yeah, it probably would be. It may still be boring to some. I was just going to say that. <laughs> it may still be some. And of course, I mean, it goes without saying that we should thank the guys in Rush. Oh, yeah. Because they're the guests every week, right? Yep. We talk about them every week. So there you go. And of course, Lex, for doing the amazing bass work for the open and close of our podcast. Without him, we'd be lost. We really would. That's right. Yeah. The, it, it's definitely a, a nice touch to have his bass intros and outros. Absolutely. So, Jared, I've got a Twitter poll for you for our 100th episode. Are you ready for this nice. one? A centennial Twitter poll? Well, not really. It's just one oh, of our usual okay. Twitter polls. Okay. So we talked about Power Windows not too long ago, and I asked the Twitterverse what their favorite song on side two of Power Windows was. Your choices are Territories, Middletown Dreams, Emotion Detector, and Mystic Rhythms. What do you think the Rush fans said? I'm going to say Middletown Dreams. You're right. Really? Finally. It only took 100 episodes for you to be right. <laughs> 36% said Middletown Dreams. It was close, though. Mystic Rhythms came in second, 32%. Territories, your favorite, Jer, 25%. Yeah. And Emotion Detector, I say this all the time, not surprisingly. I mean, I like Emotion Detector, but I figured right. it would bring up the rear here, and it did. 8% hmm. said Emotion Detector. And our buddy wow. Ryan from Rush Fans, an exclamation point, said, Emotion Detector. <laughs> he loves that song. He does. So you got an email for us, Jer. Well, it's funny you should be talking about Emotion Detector because I think when we did that episode, you wondered if anyone's favorite song is Emotion Detector. Right. There's, there has to be a Rush fan out there whose favorite song is Emotion Detector. Mm -hmm. So I got an email from Ricardo. Hey, Ricardo. And he says, in answer to your question on your podcast, Emotion Detector is in fact my number one song. Perfect tune, lyrics, tempo, solo, very emotional. That was it. That's it. There's one person out there whose favorite song is Emotion Detector. Well, the amazing thing is, I think, if you took every single one of Rush's songs, there is somebody out there that's their favorite song. I bet you that's true. I'm sure it is. I'm yeah. sure it is. Even Ty Shan, Jer. 
I'm sure. Oh, yeah, people love Taishan. But I have a, a longer email if you want to hear it. Sure. Um, this is from our buddy Spencer Courtright. Do you remember Spencer Courtright? Of course. So we read two of his emails on the air. One was about how maples and oaks grow in the forest. And another one was about acid rain. All right. I remember that. Yes. So he wrote us another one. He said, your episode this week on territories and Middletown dreams was sensational. Great insights. Really need to hear how people's views change, especially for Middletown dreams over time. A while back, I sent the email below and it really fits in with your discussion on Middletown dreams. So he sent us an email about Middletown dreams a while ago. And I guess I forgot to read it. And then he resent it. He resent it. So this is what it says. It says, hi guys, just one more note after previous notes on trees and acid rain, this time on Middletown Dreams, since you were entering shows on Power Windows. Shortly after Power Windows came out, I was winding down my graduate school career and starting to apply for teaching jobs. I really wanted a professor position at a small New England college. So when Boyden College in Maine advertised an ecology professor position, off went my application. Back came a letter saying, thanks for your application. We'll consider it along with the other 396 applicants. Depressed, I thought, there are not many ecology positions in New England. And doing the math, I'm not going to get that one there and maybe not one anywhere. But the next time I heard Middletown Dreams, I heard these lines. The office door closed early. The hidden bottle came out. The salesman turned to close the blinds. A little slow now, a little stout. But he's still heading down those tracks any day now for sure. Another day, as drab as today, is more than a man can endure. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm going to get a professor position. It took a while, and it wasn't in New England, but I got a great job. While I had extreme dedication to my work, I'll always thank Neil for helping me to keep going. Spencer. That's amazing. It's amazing how many Rush songs and how many Rush fans were inspired to follow their dreams by Neil and, and by Rush. It's incredible. He was a little depressed after getting that rejection letter. Heard Middletown Dreams and said, nope, that's not going to be me. Really is amazing. It is. So amazing. So, Jared, to celebrate our 100th episode, we decided to have our most requested guest on the podcast today. That's right. It's not Getty Lee. Nope. It's not Alex Lifeson. No. Great guests, though, they would be. They would be, but they're not our most requested guest, Jared. <laughs> it's, it's true. <laughs> This man is bassist for the Matto Reband, also bassist in the 90s band, you may remember, Jer, Love Among Freaks, mm -hmm. longtime Rush fan, and our friend for almost 40 years. The third member of the Something for Nothing family, Lex Lehman. Welcome to the Rush Fancast. Wow, no pressure there. Holy <laughs> mackerel. You're supposed to under-promise and over-deliver. What the hell is this? That's what I always say. That's only for me. I only say that. Everyone else, I over-promise. Right, over-promise over for the guest, under-promise for us. That's what we do. Right. <laughs> yeah. Good luck, kid. So, Lex, you, you know the first question we're going to ask. What is your Rush origin story? When did you first hear Rush, and how did you become a fan? Uh, I guess my family was traveling through Ontario in search of maple syrup, and I was bitten by a radioactive <laughs> moose. <laughs> I think that's my Rush origin story. No, so, you know, I have a couple older brothers and, you know, we had somewhat similar tastes in music, probably because I was the youngest, always whatever those guys were into, I was into. And I guess around the time that my consciousness became more about whatever I was identifying with, 10 years old, 11 years old, Rush was all over rock radio, New York, right? I mean, I guess what was a WPLJ at the time? 
So that would have been permanent waves into moving pictures. And uh, I think in 81, moving pictures and the, what was the live album? Um, Exit Stage Left. Exit Stage Left. I think they both came out that year. Mm -hmm. That's true. So one of my older brothers got the, you know, Columbia House, you know, where you mailed away like a penny to get like whatever it was, 10 or 12 or 13 albums. Right. And among those, besides like, you know, ACDC and Black Sabbath was Rush Moving Pictures. And uh, yeah, I absolutely fell in love with the album. I just thought it was amazing front to back. And that's pretty much where it started for me. The Exit Stage Left album to me was such a amazing like landmark in my life that even some of the versions of those songs to me are more like the ultimate version, like for, for like free will. Like when I go back and I listen to the, you know, the album version, the studio version, I should, I should say, like it's great and I love it. But the live version, like the middle section, like the way Getty plays on there, I'm just like, well, that's how it's supposed to be played, right? <laughs> so yeah, for me, that was the beginning of Rush. I didn't see them live for years after that. So, you know, it was like Signals came out. I loved Signals. Grace Under Pressure, when Power Windows came out. Do you guys remember the U68 in this area? Oh, it was yeah. like a UHF channel. They used to show music videos. Was that the one that Uncle Floyd was on too? Yeah, I think so, maybe. <laughs> and the Big Money video was on there. And that was like a big one for me. Like I was really into that when that came out. But uh, I didn't get to see them until, uh, I guess it was the Presto tour. That was just an amazing live experience. I, I might be going too far with Rush like my personal thing for Rush, but but I'm going to get to a point here. There's a reason why I keep going here. <laughs> sure. When it got to Counterparts, that's probably the last album I bought when it came out. And my tastes kind of changed at that time. And I, you know, I was getting into more some like alternative and I guess grunge was happening or whatever. So I was listening to like Soundgarden and things like that. And um, so, you know, Tess for Echo and, and Vapor Trails and all those I actually didn't really hear those, and God, the Rush Mans are going to kill me that listen to this right now. I didn't really listen to those so much until after I started doing the podcast for you guys, and you're like, hey, can you record a song? And now I've fallen <laughs> in love with them. But uh, they came around for the Time Machine tour, and I heard they were going to be doing the entire Moving Pictures album. As I told you, that was like the seed at the beginning for me. I got tickets so me and my brothers could go see them play moving pictures in its entirety and i was so blown away at, at how great they were and not just that they started they were playing a couple of the songs that they'd already written for uh clockwork angels if you remember at mm -hmm. that point right mm -hmm. and i was just like wow that was the most amazing and i ran into you guys there do you remember it was at yeah. the pnc bank art center you yeah, guys yep. came over to say hi and after that you know that's when i started to like go back and listen to the stuff that i had missed so when clockwork angels came out that was the next one i got new so there was a big gap for me from counterparts to clockwork angels for me to fill back in so i went back to the you know russian rio stuff and all that you know and then i was lucky enough that me and bro my brothers again got to see r40 and easily one of the best shows i mean i've seen hundreds of shows of hundreds of bands and easily the one of the best you know that's in the top tier of shows i'd ever seen before it was so perfect from beginning to end oh yeah it was so anyway that's my very long-winded version of my origin story. You know, we have got to find out whatever happened to Columbia House. We have so many people <laughs> who have come on the podcast who have been like, I got my first Rush album, Columbia House. What happened to Columbia House? I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, 
Did they exist through the CD era? I suppose they did. They did because I was like everyone else. I joined like eight times. So I got like <laughs> my first got CDs. That's how I got my first 100 CDs. It also tells you how cheap it is to press a, a, an album on CD or record where they could give you 13 for free if you just buy like four more. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Well, that's my story too. I right. I got Columbia House and I got two Rush albums in my Columbia House out of 13. Yeah. And we just talked to Kevin J. Anderson who wrote Clockwork Angels with Neil. That was his Rush origin story too, Columbia House. Right, Columbia House. Wow, go figure. And I wouldn't feel too bad about not listening you know, on release date of some Rush albums because there were, it was like Tess for Echo and Vapor Trails. When we did them for the podcast, I really hadn't listened to them beyond listening to them when they came out and not really liking them. Okay. And then I just never listened to them really until we had to do them for the podcast. And sure. same with you. I'm like, oh, well, these albums are pretty good. You know, your tastes change along the way and uh, they've evolved back into what I liked. I think one of the good things that I've also for me with that with rush uh, especially since i was doing the some of these baselines for you guys for the for the podcast is that um just seeing how much they evolved over all this time the band not just the songwriting but the playing and you know lyrically i mean you can just see the growth from when they're like young kids from when like the first album came out and they kind of represent the time without being like that mainstream oh this is what everybody else was doing but right. you can always hear those little nuggets in what they're doing that like, oh, yes, this was happening at the, at the time, you know? And I, I yeah. really dig that about it. They, they really captured moments in time, which I guess is what you want to do on a record, right? I mean, record, that's the word in there. <laughs> um, people can't see my air quotes, but you get the idea. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I guess we can talk through that a little bit as we go. Well, yeah, I mean, Rush has always, to me, has always been of their moment, if not sure. representing the musical taste of the moment. You can sure. definitely, you know, feel the influences of things that were happening. Like even on like moving pictures, right? They got a little, they were listening to, you know, the police and some reggae stuff. So there's some of that in there. Yep. And in the eighties, you know, keyboards were finally coming into their own. So of course there are keyboards that use completely different than eighties keyboard sounds. They just kind of incorporated cool new stuff into their already cool sound yes and they definitely liked it's weird because sometimes you know you hear like getty will talk and he i don't think he considers himself a gearhead per se i mean i wouldn't know i never spoken to him but like when he talked about his instruments he didn't become like the big bass collector until more recently like maybe the past decade or so because to him it was just a tool but right. he certainly liked to expand that toolbox over time yeah. right right i yeah. mean you think about in the first album is like, okay, he's got a P bass and, you know, plugged in probably to an Ampeg or something like that. And that's, that was his rig. And then slowly over time, it's like, oh, what is this? Let me try this out. Oh, let me try this out. What is the, oh, that person's doing this? Let me try that out. You know, right. Suddenly all of his hands are full and his feet. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know? If he had any other appendages he could use, he'd be using those too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very inspirational. I'm kind of sorry that I didn't play so much of his material i'm going to talk probably about getty a lot just because i'm a bass player i probably didn't play so much of his material in any of my bands because a lot of the bands that i played in you know were on a different path and um doing this podcast for me has been a discovery of a lot of things like how his technique has evolved and things like that over time because uh you know i mean i came up 
playing hard rock and then it was into like metal and then you know people i was playing with wanted to be into like the shredder guitar players and things like that and then i went to music school so i got into like jazz and classical music and things like that and then some of my own bands you know in the 90s we were doing i guess sort of heavier stuff and funkier stuff and I just never had a band that was like, hey, let's play natural science or something. But like when you guys asked me like to do that for one of the podcasts, I was like, oh my God, I love playing that song. It's so <laughs> it's just so fun to play. Um and I'd imagine it's fun for those guys to play too. But anyway. So let, let's go back to your youth though. Was Getty Lee an influence on you as a young bass player at all? Absolutely. Absolutely. So you know, Steve, you're a player. Yes. Um, even people that you don't directly emulate influence your playing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I think I got specifically from Getty is the, you know, because as a bass player, you want to lock in with the with the drummer rhythmically, right? So kick, mm-hmm. snare, sometimes, you know, root, octave and things like that, like directly on where the kick drum is hitting and the snare is hitting and things like that. But one of the things that Getty and Neil did a lot that I really dug was those unison, and I mean rhythmically unison, right? Um, let me give an example, like um, Spirit of Radio, right? When he's doing those, like the fills on, you know, uh, in the beginning, right? And he just hits right on those. And I, I really dig that, that locking in with the drummer on things like that. And I think that's something that I specifically picked up listening to Getty and Neil play. Because, um, you know, some of my big influences when I started was like uh, Geezer Butler from Black Sabbath and John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin, guys like that. Uh, Steve Harris from Iron Maiden, just because, you know, mm-hmm. I was really into that at the time. Really like tight pants. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where's my spandex? Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't know if maybe, maybe at the time I thought Getty was above my ability or something like that. I don't know if he would think about that himself because, you know, he would probably think of like better than John Paul Jones. What are you talking about? But I think some of the stuff that Getty does rhythmically is a lot more challenging than people think it is. Even if it's just between a couple of notes, you know, if you think of someone who plays like these fast fills up and down scales and things like that, like, I mean, technically you can practice that up and down, but some of the stuff that Getty does rhythmically between his left and his right hand and the different techniques that he uses with his right hand, while they might be natural for him, that some of them are pretty unorthodox. It's not necessarily something you would teach, right? Just sounds amazing and not sure where I was going with the point, but anyway. Well, what about his technique though? Because I was just talking to my, my daughter, my younger daughter is sure. learning to play guitar and a little bit of bass. Sure. And of course, I'm telling her about... <laughs> I'm always playing Russian around the house. And I was telling her about Getty's, uh, the thing that Getty does with his, with his index finger, where he's just kind of slapping yeah. it around in his yeah, finger. Yeah, yeah. Is that what, the kind of technique you're talking about? That's some of the stuff. Um, I mean, maybe I could demonstrate it with the instrument better. I'm not really sure. Sure, go ahead, please. I was listening to your Joe Bergamini and he was like playing his drums. So this, I'm going to probably embarrass myself here because I don't have these <laughs> things like locked into my head really well. Uh, can you guys hear this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sounds great. Okay, so let me think it. So early on, right, he was playing straight ahead uh, rock technique. So like something like, you know, uh, what you're doing, right? Right? And as time went on, um, some of the stuff they did rhythmically, like 
um, something. Let me think of something like uh, a ma- marathon, right? Trying to show that, like rhythmically, that's a little more difficult than it maybe it seems. It seems pretty difficult. I mean, you could go through like Y Y Z Y Y Z. Um, which is similar. He he did a lot of that, like where he would go between, like that type of thing, right? That's sort of a very similar phrase, where he's uh, sort of uh, shuttling between, right? That's uh, you're kind of raking between a couple of strings. Raking meaning you know you're plucking across the strings to get that that feel that, and then. Also, during that, a little bit before, that, that's like 80s stuff, a lot of the 80s stuff that he did. Very complicated rhythmically. He got into like double stop, so like chords, but not like three note chords, right? So he'd play like two notes. So uh, what would be one? I don't know what key that song's in, but I'm thinking of. That's not the right key. The pass. The pass. So things like that. Um, what key is a. God, you think I would know this stuff? <laughs> right he's doing the you know little chordal things like that and he so he incorporated a lot more of that stuff as he got into the the 2000s and then it was like that i guess what he might call flamenco thing or whatever um from interviews that i've heard with him from playing with uh primus he was watching les claypool and the different things that you know les claypool's all over the neck two hands on the neck and a lot of slapping and popping Mm -hmm. and getty started to do the I think he does it with mostly one finger where he's sort of like like picking it like right so like um animate I think he's using that pretty straightforward I mean it almost sounds like someone using a pick right but he's using his finger he's using his finger to get that and he's I mean you can see if you, them playing it live and he's kind of flick I wish I wish this podcast had a video uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's sort of the finger back and forth and using his nail a lot and even if you've got some sort of like popping sounds, he's not doing that traditional pop with like the thumb and a. He's with his nail. Really? Yeah. What's an example of that? Like uh, Big Money in the 80s when he started playing those like wall basses. He hits very hard, but he's also kind of like getting sort of a slap sound out of it by. Right? He's sort of pulling on the string like that. But he's not he's not playing like uh Flea would play where he's yeah, just he's like not, thumping he, it yeah, with his... he, exactly. He's not He's not doing that right. whole thing. And another one, this will probably be the last example I can think of off the top of my head right here. In Driven, he's sort of plucking with a couple fingers to play like a double stop, right? And then he's using his thumb to hit. So he's like uh hum hum driven for me for a second. Now I'm thinking of other things. He's using the three fingers. He's plucking with these and then he's with the thumb getting the. You know, they're just interesting little techniques that he's doing to get the sounds that he's trying to get. And that's stuff that, you know, he picked up over time where, like I said, initially he's playing pretty straightforward. Like, you know, you could have heard like a lot of rock bass players in the 70s play like that, but he evolved his technique. Anyway, sorry. I mean, that's the that's the band in general, right? Evolving over time. Absolutely, absolutely. Whatever's working for them or whatever is interesting to them right now is what they just want to sure. try and 
and incorporate. Sure. But, you know, being a bass player, I see a lot. And especially doing this podcast, when it's like, hey, can you do this song? Now I got to figure out how he's doing it. It was right. very interesting to see that progression, both um, the sounds specifically, you know, when he went from a P bass to the Rick, you know, Rickenbacker. And then in the 80s, he's using the wall bass and then back to the jazz because he did use the jazz bass, although he wasn't playing it live so much, I don't think. I think he was mostly playing the Rick. And then mostly the jazz bass for the rest of the career once he hit like the uh, early 90s until like the R40 tour. Uh, although I think there was a fretless in there too. I think that malignant narcissism, he, there's a fretless on that. But uh, for the most part, you see him with the, the jazz bass, like his 72 jazz that he found in a pawn shop or somebody found yeah, in a yeah. pawn shop for a couple hundred dollars. He paid 200 bucks for it. That's crazy. Yeah. So playing all these songs for us, and thank you so much for doing that, first of all. Did you learn anything that you incorporate into your playing now that you didn't use before? Hmm, that's a good question. I'm sure I've pulled some stuff out. I can't think of a specific one off the top of my head, but so I play in more of like a blues rock band. So there's a bit more improvisation that goes on. And I'd say that trying to lock in on a lot of the drum fills is probably, you know, just from hearing Getty, but specific techniques, like I'm not as by a long shot. I'm no Getty Lee. So, you know, I can only do so much. I'm just a man. Anyway, <laughs> but yeah, sure. I'll try and come up with one and I'll tweet it to you. <laughs> but I mean, just inspired, seriously, just inspired by, uh, by what he's doing. Do you have a new appreciation for Getty's playing after learning all these songs? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially since he was doing that, plus playing things with his feet, plus playing keyboards, plus singing. That's another thing is some of these things are complicated to play just the bass line. But some of them, he's playing a complicated bass line and singing at the same time, mm -hmm. which is kind of mind-boggling to me because right. I don't understand how he gets the you know two sides of his brain or whatever working to do that. I'll say this too, just to get off Getty for a second. I've also gained more of an appreciation for Alex. Not that I didn't realize how great Alex was before, but um, his playing evolved greatly over the course of the career. You know, straight ahead rock player, you could hear the influences of like, you know, Jimmy Page and stuff on him. Just how he filled out things, the way he voiced chords, incorporating a lot of like open strings into like, you know, he would play like a bar chord and pick up a couple of fingers and phrase it a little differently just to give a little different flavor to it. You know, soloing, not soloing when it wasn't appropriate. Like he wasn't the guy that was trying to jam a guitar solo into every song. Changing just his gear. I mean, he did a lot of gear changes. I mean, I know he was playing the Gibson a lot back in the day, but then he switched into like more strats in the 80s and the different amps that he's gone through. Some of the, was like Hughes and Kettner stuff and the, uh, I guess he has his own signature Lurkst amps now. Mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah, big appreciation for Alex. I mean, because people like to talk about Neil a lot because he's always at the top of like drummer polls, greatest drummer and all that stuff. And uh, I feel like Alex needs to be higher on the list than he gets credit for. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've discovered that talking to all our guests on the podcast, Jerry. I mean, Alex just doesn't get the love that he should. All Rush fans feel that way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know why that would be, but for some reason he's, he doesn't make the top of a lot of those uh, magazine polls, I guess. I would think it comes from like, certainly in the 80s, 
when a lot of guitar players, you know, they're following the Eddie Van Halen model and then the, you know, shredders after like Yngwie Malmsteen and stuff like that. And Alex didn't go down that rabbit hole of, let me see how many notes I can fill into, you know, uh, one bar, one measure, like I can play faster than you. Like it's a sport, you know, he's just playing what's appropriate for the song at the time. He's, he's pulling out an emotion, you know, I mean, one of my favorite guitar solos of all time is Limelight. I mean, I love that. And it's a lot of like, just very airy, you know, he's using the whammy bar, just a, you know, yeah, And it just, you just feel the emotion in the whole thing. It's amazing that he can say so much more doing that sort of like a, like a David Gilmore would with Pink Floyd. There's so much mm-hmm. more emotion in that than like, you know, the muscular, I'm going to play, you know, as fast as I can and see if you can keep up with this type of mentality. So what we thought would be fun today, since we have you here, Lex, and you are yes. a, a fantastic bassist, we would do our top five Getty bass lines. We've done this before with Rush songs, but we figured this would be fun. Well, I just want to say at the beginning of this, this was way harder than I thought it was going to be. (laughs) (laughs) It always is. Do you have a certain songs in mind? And then when you started listening to other songs, you're like, oh my God, that's so good too. Yes. And then I started to think of like, well, what are ways I can pare this down, right? And I managed to pare it down to like, okay, well, here's the top like 25. And then I started to think of, um, maybe I could do sort of by, and I know this might not be the same for other people of what they consider like different eras of Rush, but for me, what I consider sort of different eras of Rush and pick something that sort of represents that time for me and what I liked. And this isn't necessarily, because I mean, some of the obvious ones become, and I I hope this isn't on your list if I say, these are the obvious ones. <laughs> Probably. My my list is probably all obvious ones. If I say like, you know, YYZ and I say uh, La Villa Strangiato because, you know, oh, he has that amazing, you know, fill in the middle of it that everyone likes that little solo section. And they're just ones that when I hear it, it's just like fits the song so well or carries the song, you know, or maybe he's doing some technique that I think is really interesting. I try to do that. So it's like, okay, this is sort of this part of the evolution of the band, this is this part of the evolution of the band, and this is the one to me that I liked. So I'll explain them as I go through. And I don't think I can put them in order because like I said, I thought this was such a hard exercise to try and find like favorite. I mean, you guys know, you you were trying to rank the top songs and there's like 170 songs and (laughs) there's no stinkers in there. It's impossible. You know what I found listening to various different songs and I'm like, oh, you know, I love his bass line is that there, there really isn't, most songs don't have a bass line, right? <laughs> they have a few of them. Sure. So it's different than other rock bands where you're just like, oh, this is a great bass line. You know, like an ACDC song, it's like, oh, that's a good bass line. And it's the bass line of the song. Yeah. Sometimes Rush songs, you just like, there's like five different sections of bass lines. Sure. It's like, which, which one is my favorite in this song? Yeah, exactly. So Jared, why don't we start with you? Oh, God. Give us your number five. Well, again, uh, I'm with Lex. I didn't, these aren't ranked. These aren't five to one. Okay. One in five. It's just a list of songs. (laughs) So my first one is just pretty obvious. It's Tom Sawyer. I can't not listen to Tom Sawyer and not love every single note played in that song. And the bass line in that song, I just think is one of the most classic Rush 
baselines that they have. It's iconic. So are we talking about the middle, like the Okay. Exactly. Yeah. That's the part I'm thinking of. Yep. But to see that's what I'm talking about. The middle, it's the middle part. And I had to ask. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> All right, Lex, what's your number five? Since I said I did it sort of by era, I'm gonna start early and work in the other direction. Okay. I sort of almost spoiled it a little bit, but uh, I really like Lakeside Park a lot. I think Lakeside Park, it's very like lyrical. It really moves the song along just from the bass perspective. Like you could hear just the bass line to me and there's the song. It sounds amazing. I, I love that line. And it's, you know, very early on in the career. All right. Steve, what about you? So my number five is also from an earlier era of Rush. It's Cygnus X1 Book One. That to me is just an iconic bass line and just the way he is just in lockstep with Neil in that song always blows me away. Just hearing hearing those notes, dun 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 dun, dun that's <laughs> like Lex wants to play it. Here he goes. He does. But like you guys said, it, it's not the best bass lines in my estimation. It's just what I think of when I think of Getty. These yeah, are yeah. the these are the bass lines I thought of first. There you go. So right. So what's your number four, Jar? Seven Cities of Gold. Wow. Clockwork Angels. <laughs> Oof, man, that bass line is so dirty. It's so dirty, <laughs> right? And in the intro, it's got like a little, a little hiccup at the beginning. You know, whatever he's doing there, it's like a tick. I wrote down ticka, ticka, ticka. I don't know why. But just the beginning of that song, it's so unbelievable to me. First of all, that whole album, I've said this a number of times, that that entire album is such an amazing album for people who have been around for so long and have made so many different records to come out with an album like that. But to come up with a bass line like this after playing bass for so many years, I don't know where these ideas come from. They just this the beginning of this song is like the dirtiest, nastiest, and I mean that in the best way possible. Beginning to a rush song, I think that I know. Cool. Lex, would you say Getty got better and better and better as he got older? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel like that he also got more comfortable in his own skin. Again, I'm not in his head, but I feel like maybe he felt like there was something he was trying to prove when he was younger. And, you know, some of the prog stuff, you know, some of that stuff got really complicated. I would say Clockwork Angels in particular, it feels like an amalgamation of everything they did over the course of 40 years. It's just, it's such such a perfect album, both, you know, the songwriting, the the playing, the, the, the bass lines. They're fun to play and to listen to, too. So yeah, I mean, he absolutely got better as he aged. I mean, I'd love to hear what he's, I hope he does something next. You know, there's a, my favorite headache too. Oh, sure. Right. Sure. So what's your number four, Lex? Okay. So I guess we'll sort of go chronologically again, and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. And this was hard because that's sort of what I think of like second era of Rush, some of the prog stuff. Um, and this is sort of at the end, the prog stuff is kind of over, but, uh, Free Will. 
this is the live exit stage left version too. The the middle section, the way he plays that just it rips my head off every time. And, and he's again some of that stuff just locked in with Neil, just iconic. It's fun to play. It's fun to listen to. And the whole song really on that one. Yeah, I love Free Will. That's just an amazing bass line. Steve? My number four, I went with Marathon from Power Windows. We were just talking about this a few episodes ago, Jared. Just an iconic bass line. It drives the song along. So complicated, but so yes. beautiful at the same time. You, you just played it for us, Lex. How was it learning that one? Fun. I really liked it. But, uh, and that was on my short list, by the way. Yeah, great line. Drives the song. Really a showcase of Getty's fleet fingers. Good choice. Yeah. yeah. It's busy, but it's not busy. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, it suits the whole point of the song, right? It's sort of right. that repeating. It's almost like the footsteps, you know, of mm-hmm. the, the runner. You know, right. I'm doing something visual. Yeah, you're doing it with <laughs> yeah. your fingers. I can see it. I know what you I wonder if people who run marathons, if anyone ever runs to that song because it's, it, it's a good running song i wonder what uh how fast you can run to it 26 miles on repeat yeah 26 <laughs> miles on repeat <laughs> all right joe we're up to number three for you let's hear it well i'm going with scars oh that's a good one hey, hey. why did yeah. i think of that the reason why i picked scars is precisely because of what i said at the beginning where so many Rush songs, there are different bass lines throughout the whole song. Scars, unless I'm completely mistaken, which I very well may be, is basically the same bass line throughout the whole song with occasional little accents here and there. So in that respect, it seems to me a little different than a lot of songs because he's just doing that like throughout the entire song. But it's still great. Yeah, it's perfect. Like like everything else, it's perfect. Can't disagree. Lex, what's your number three? I'm sticking close to where I just was time-wise. Uh, but I, and again, this was hard to whittle down to, but uh, Red Barchetta. Again, another just makes the song, the melodic little piece in the beginning, the one at the end, and just how he, all the way throughout the song, just, oh. It grabs me every time, you know. Um, it just oh, all by itself. You, you know, you ever find those isolated tracks like on YouTube? Yeah, oh, yeah. I love I love listening to that track just by itself. It is amazing. So my number three is from Hold Your Fire, and it's Turn the Page. Lex, I think you did this one for us too. This is an example of, um, you know, Getty playing those chords, like kind of like you did with the past, but yeah, a little different. And this is a complicated one, right? Yeah. And that made my short list of when I whittled down to like one, be- the best one for me per album, that was the one for me was uh, Hold Your Fire. I mean, from Hold Your Fire was Turn the Page. Yeah. That's the definite standout on that record. What do you think of that one, Jer? I think it's a solid choice, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good, good job. So uh, number two for you, Jer. Well, it's uh, one that Lex mentioned when he was playing, Animate. I love the beginning of Animate. Again, it's just 
kind of like that one note, right? Playing over and over again at the beginning. Sure. Maybe for me, a lot of the songs have to do with how they start, you know, how the bass starts. And it's just a, it's an excellent introduction to the song in general. Now, is that one of those songs, Lex, that, I mean, you mentioned he, he uses his fingers and not a pick, but that's one of those songs that I bet most bass players would use a, a pick to play, right? Yes. And I think I did that one for you guys. And I think I may have used the pick because I was using, <laughs> I do, you know, like the alternate picking with two fingers. Right. And uh, it just didn't sound right. And I think, I don't know if it's because, you know, he uses the nail or whatever. So I ended up using a pick to play it because it also... If you play that song all the way through, the stamina gets you after a while, right? Digga 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 digga. Do that for a few minutes, you know. Right. Which begs the next question: How does Getty do that for three hours? How does Getty Lee be Getty Lee for three hours every night at a Rush show? Could you possibly fathom that? Well, think about how young he was when he started playing a lot of shows. Right. I mean, those guys were teenagers and they were touring. Right. I mean, and then they were like, you know, hardest working band in show business for practically 40 years where, you know, they'd put out an album six months later, another album comes out that happened in the seventies, at least once or twice. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're just constantly playing and playing and playing and playing. I mean, I'd like to think that he built that stamina up just from, he was always had that instrument in his hand every night in front of an audience. And there's a different adrenaline when you're playing in front of an audience than, you know, somebody can practice at home for eight hours a day all they want. When you get out in front of a, you know, the energy of a crowd, you're playing a lot harder and you'll wear yourself out quick. So for someone like Getty, that was his practice. He was playing out every night, you know, for years. And then in the studio and then back on the road and in the studio and back on the road. So I just think, you know, it's like uh, an athlete, he just built up those muscles. Yeah, he's definitely the go-to pickle jar opener of his family. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so what's your number two, Lex? Okay, so I got down to, uh, I guess I had big money on my list here. See, I'm looking at my list and I had a couple things circled. I'm trying to like, at the last <laughs> second. It depends on what day you ask me. I'm going to change the uh, this song. I'm going to go with uh, big money. Again, that's one when I told you about back to uh, U68. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love yeah. watching him play that. It's just a it's just a really cool line, you know. I think that was Getty trying to get a little funky. You know, it's just a really cool. That was the worst <laughs> that I just did, but anyway. <laughs> but you get the idea. It's just it's just a really funky little line. It's. Fun to listen to, fun to play. I know I've said that a bunch of times, but it really is. Very creative, suits the song. And if you ask me tomorrow, I'm probably going to pick New World Man, you know, because I'm well, constantly changing. <laughs> I'm going to constantly change what's my top Speaking five. of that, my number two, I thought you were going to say it was an obvious choice. It's New World Man. It's a song that almost didn't get written and to me it's one of getty's most iconic bass lines would you agree lex oh my god i couldn't agree with you more i literally have a sheet of paper in my hand here with stuff that i wrote down and i have new world man circled like should it be that um (laughs) yeah i mean that's another one of those ones where (sighs) there's a lot of bass players where if you heard just the bass you just 
be like, I'm not sure what that is. I need to, I need some context, you know? You hear New World Man, you know exactly what song it is. Mm-hmm. Right. Any point in the song, too. And one thing that's interesting about that one, because, you know, when Getty talks about influences and stuff like that, he mentions a lot of bass players. And I guess I've heard him mention the police as an influence, but I've never heard him mention Sting directly. But I feel like there's a little bit of that in, in there. Because, I mean, maybe they were listening to reggae or something like that at the time, specifically. But, uh, you know, that the section... You know, that's... I don't know. I feel like that probably came a little bit from listening to Sting and the police. But yeah, that's a just an amazing bass line, man. Amazing. Everything about it. I love that. And so compact. You know, it's a short song and he says mm-hmm. a lot in a little yeah. bit with, with just the bass. Damn, I wish I'd picked that. All right, Jared, we're, we're to number one. Let's hear it. Well, hopefully you guys will agree. Red Lenses. Wow. Love that. I see red. And again, it seems to me a, a simpler kind of bass line than some of the other songs, but it's just, it's perfect for the song. And if I'm not mistaken, he's playing the bass pedals at some point. Actually, I had to, I had to fact check that with one of the admins at Rush Fan's Instagram. His name is Ryder. I sent him a message and I said, hey, is he really playing bass pedals on this part? And he said, yeah. So thanks for that, Ryder. I didn't want to get that one wrong. And... It just proves to me that, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, Getty he didn't play the bass as much. He's playing bass lines. But the bass line, while he's playing his pedals, is still an interesting bass line to me. Sure. It really anchors the song in its place. So I have no problem with, with the bass pedals at all. Sure. I mean, he could be playing bass with his left hand on the keyboards and it would still be interesting, right? If it's in that register. I'm saying if he was, but you get the point. Just a, a creative guy is a creative guy. Well, Jerry, you definitely didn't do the typical choices, I don't think. I tried. I tried, Steve. Yeah, I thought you were going to say Tai Shan. Yeah, that's, yeah, not, I don't, yeah, that's not on the list. <laughs> so is Tai Shan your number one, Lex? <laughs> no, but it'd be great if it was. Yeah, it would be. <laughs> um, yeah, I had a hard time with this one because I'm thinking of this for me, you know, when I say I'm sort of trying to pick eras as like, you know, the uh, 90s into the 2000s. And, uh, there was a lot to choose from. They're very diverse. But I'm going to go back to one that I was doing before, which was uh, Driven. I just think the technique that he's doing in there, I think he layers some bass at one point where he's playing two lines at once, but just the techniques that he's doing and it's the sound, it's, it wasn't typical of something that he would have done before too, which is kind of cool. So he, he reached out for something different and the live version where he does it with the, like he's that's sort of like a bass solo and he's got like the delay mm-hmm. pedal on. It's just, uh, it's really cool, man. I just, like I said, Getty kept growing and trying different things all throughout the, the years that the, the, the band was playing and it shows in something like that. And I think it also falls a little bit on that one because I, there was like four different ones I wanted to pick from Clockwork Angels. And I'm like, I can't pick four songs because they're only letting me do five. <laughs> <laughs> I had the same problem though, because I was going to pick another song from Clockwork Angels, but I said, I can't pick t- two songs from Clockwork Angels. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Garden would have been a great choice from Clockwork Angels too. That's a great one. Yeah. So Jared, before we did this, you said, should we compare notes and see if anybody repeats any picks? Yes. 
And so far, we've had 14 different choices. Okay. But I'm going to ruin that, that, that right now. I'm going to yeah. ruin that right now. I'm sorry. My number one is Red Barchetta. I mean, just the number one Getty bass line in my mind. Whenever I pick up a bass, and I don't do it much anymore, I always play that. It's just fun to play, fun to listen to, and just a real interesting bass line throughout. The harmonics at the end, it's it's just beautiful. Good choice, Lex. Yeah, it's an amazing bass line. Yes, great minds think alike. <laughs> <laughs> or was that the obvious choice that I was talking no, about No, no. I don't think it was obvious. I, I just think it's a, a good choice. Yeah, man. It stood the test of time, too. It's just, to me, still sounds just as fresh as it did when I was, you know, 11 years old and it came out. You know, it's just amazing. Uh, the choice of notes, he still rocks hard, too. Like, he goes from a very beautiful little melody in the beginning to rocking really hard in the middle of the song and then brings it back at the end to, like, a really tasty, like, sweet line, you know? Yeah. Amazing bass line. I, Probably in the ones that I picked, that's probably number one, too, if I had to rank them, although ranking them is really hard. So I think it's safe to say that, that Getty is a one-of-a-kind talent. Do you think there'll ever be another bass player like Getty Lee, Lex? It can't be. It can't be. And I say it like this. You know, music being a language and, you know, the instrument you choose being your voice, being your... Uh, I don't remember how Les Claypool described playing bass. It was the crayon he pulled out of the box, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I, now I realize that Getty's playing with a couple of different colors of crayon, but that's his voice. He's expressing himself through that instrument, right? His his choice of notes, his articulation, the technique with which he actually strikes the strings, the equipment that he chose. It's so uniquely him. I mean, it's his voice. And I don't hear anybody else ever like that. It's just Getty is very much him. There's a million other bass players out there that, you know, you could interchange them and they're sort of doing the same thing. And I fall into that category. Oh, we know that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> if I played you something that was mine, you'd be like, I don't know who that is. But Getty, <laughs> Getty sounds like Getty, no matter what he does, you know. I'd love to hear the isolated track of him playing with Yes at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. Mm. And when he's playing Roundabout, I'd be like, it probably sounds like Getty playing, not Chris Squire, right? It's That's right. Getty. It's his, he is a very unique, amazing, we're lucky to have you know, seen once in a lifetime. How else can I say unique? Help me out here. <laughs> you want me to get my adjective cup out? <laughs> Should I just say fantastic like Steve? Yeah, so fantastic. <laughs> so Lex, why don't you tell us uh, what you're up to uh, with the Matto Reband? If our listeners are in New Jersey, uh, where can they see you perform? Okay, yeah, sure. Um, let's see, by the time this comes out, we have a theater show coming up at the Vogel in Red Bank. So Count Basie's got a smaller room off the side. It's the Count Basie Theater. There's the Vogel. Um, I think it's like 400 seats. And that's in the end of August. Right now, as of this recording, we're putting out some covers while we work on material for the next album. So we hope to have something out by the end of the year, you know, original stuff. But we're going to be throwing out just some uh, covers and uh, videos to go along with it. And you can find us at the, uh, it's uh, matterreband.com. And uh, Matt's got a YouTube channel. It's Mob on TV. And there's a, if you don't mind, I wanted to plug something real quick. Sure. This past weekend, we played a, a charity out in Ohio. 
It's a cancer charity. It's called uh, Blues for a Cure. And it's a really cool thing for people if they want to check it out and donate some money to the cause. And it's all for cancer research. Well, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast today, Lex, and helping us out with our 100th episode. I'm serious. We get more requests for you than any other guest. So the listeners, I'm sure, are happy to hear from you. I hope that what just occurred over the last however long we were talking doesn't disappoint because <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm not that guy. I mean, I'm the bass player in a band. I'm not the front man. So for me to come out and speak, I was nervous about this and I'm just waiting for the rush bands to be like, Oh, what's he talking about? That's wrong. No, no. I, th- <laughs> I think, I think quite the opposite. You know, we usually let our guests go, but since you're part of the family here, we're going to keep you right to the end. Oh, all right. So, yeah. so Jared, what did you think of our conversation with Lex today? You're asking me right in front of him? Yeah, Awkward. right in front of him. <laughs> Awkward. Oh, yeah. I think it was great. I love talking to Lex. When we play poker, every once in a while, I just lean over to Lex and be like, can we talk about something else than what other people are talking about in <laughs> politics? Yes. And then we start talking about something else. Just so people know, since we didn't point this out, uh, Steve, Jerry, and I went to high school together. So we go back a long ways. Yeah, yeah. that's true. 37 years, I counted. That's crazy. Yeah. You counted. Yeah, well, I... I that's, I, that's unlike you, Steve. <laughs> Got every way to count. So, Jerry, we almost forgot. You mentioned you had an email you wanted to read about Lex. Yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty long email from this guy named Bart, and it was a little while ago, but he was questioning whether or not Lex actually exists. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so sure if him being on the podcast, though, is really going to settle the matter. Because he could be anybody, right? That's true. You could be anyone. I could be a paid actor. That's right. Well, you'd be an actor. We, we wouldn't pay you. But um, <laughs> <laughs> this is what Bart, this is what Bart, we're not getting paid. We're certainly not going to pay an actor to pretend to be you. There you go. So Bart said, speaking of guitar players, does your friend Lex really exist? I love the intros and outros on the podcast, but besides you telling us it's your pal Lex, he's never been heard. So unless he is not Steve or Jerry who is playing these parts, I think you should introduce Lex on the podcast and let him talk Rush for a bit, which is what we just did. What we just did. And Bart's happy. I hope Bart's happy. There you go. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram, you can find us at The Rushcast. Email Jerry. Let him know what you thought of our conversation with Lex at therushcast at gmail.com. And I can thank you personally, Lex, today for doing the bass intro and outro. And since I haven't chosen what I'm going to use yet, you can pick it. I think we should do Red Barchetta. I think it makes sense, right? I think so, since we both picked that in our top five. Yes, yes. Follow us on your favorite podcast app. And Jerry's going to give us a great quote to wrap this up. Go for it, Jerry. I am. It's from uh, one of my picks, Red Lenses. Oh, nice. We've got Mars on the horizon, says the National Midnight Star. You're not going to help me out with the it's true? It's true. (laughs) What do you believe is what you are. Awesome. Thanks, guys. See you. Later.